Good morning, everybody. We're so glad you could join us this morning. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And today we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Exodus, which we have called God on the Move. And last week we covered the first four of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And today we will finish those commands um, as we get through the end of the chapter. So last week I showed you the classroom rules that I used to introduce my students to fifth grade. It was a great way to define the boundaries for them as to what was acceptable and what was not. You see, kids tend to think in black and white, and they love the security that rules give them. As you can see, the rules were more principles than specific behaviors. For example, be respectful. That could apply to every relationship in that classroom, from anywhere uh, to how they spoke to me or responded to my instruction to how they treated each other. It also dictated as, that as their teacher, I would treat each one equally important, never mocking them or tearing them down no matter what happened. Every person in that room mattered and deserved to be treated with respect. Now that rule in particular always got some intense discussion. Children can be thoughtless or even cruel to each other. So when I asked them if they had ever been hurt or put down by a classmate, every hand went up. So I said, can you imagine going to school every day knowing that you would be completely safe from being treated like that? Their response was always striking. They would love having a school community like that. Who wouldn't? You see, living in community can be a challenge, even in fifth grade. God was molding the descendants of Israel to be a nation, a community. He told them, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He wanted them to stand out from the other kingdoms in this world. He wanted them to be holy, which means set apart. And he wanted to use them to draw the rest of the earth to him. So not long after rescuing them out of slavery, he had them camp at the foot of Mount Sinai, and there he gave them the Ten Commandments. Last week we learned that the first four commandments were instructive on how to worship and understand their living God. They were principles in how to have a relationship with him, both personally and as a nation. And we'll just go over them quickly so you get a context for the rest of the commandments we'll cover today. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. This was important because they were surrounded by neighbors who had lists of gods they honored and served. God was letting them know they would have one. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You see, all the other nations made handcrafted representations of their gods and worshipped them. God would not tolerate any of that. And interestingly, God didn't even want them to try to represent him with an image because it would be limiting him to representing his creation rather than creation representing him and put him on par with the pagan gods of the nations. Israel was not to worship their God or any other God in that way. And the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Someone's name was believed to reflect their character and reputation, and to use his name in any flippant way would give him a bad name. It would undermine his power, scorn his existence, and misrepresent him to humankind. And fourth, 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. After creation was finished on the seventh day, God rested. He created the Sabbath to give the people a chance to renew and refocus their relationship with him. They were to follow God's example. They were his people and to be priests to the nations. So representing him meant identifying with him in every way possible. You see, every one of those things would speak loudly to the pagan nations. Only one God? No idols? Considering his name holy? Taking one day out of seven off to worship? No one's religion looked like that in the pagan world. Obeying these commands would set them apart. They'd be something and it would draw people outside of the nation to God which would make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, exactly what God had purposed for them to be. Now, when Jesus was asked what the most important command was, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So let's read Exodus 20, 12 to 17, and see what the rest of these commandments are all about. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask your help this morning as we go through these commands. Please help us to understand exactly what you were saying and and find ways for us to be able to um, apply these truths to our lives because we want the word of God to be always working in our hearts and transforming us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, can you imagine living in a community in which all of those principles were followed? The first one, honor your father and mother. It's an interesting one because what does honor mean? Well, the Hebrew word kabod, exalt, gives preference to. Um, It's to give respect or social distinction. Honoring someone in the Bible sets them above others, and it's often demonstrated in a public act of praise. So why was this command important? Well, God meant for the Israelite parents to teach the law to their children. If the children were going to learn to love and respect the law, they must first respect and honor their teachers, which were their fathers and mothers. It's an important first step to building a community. When children honor their parents, they heed their instruction. And if they keep the law of God, they will not do harm to their fellow Israelites. When the people honored their parents, they were honoring God because they're following his command. Now, unfortunately, not everyone has parents that actually deserve honor. There are parents who seem to have done their best to ruin their kids' lives. How can such children honor their parents? Now again, It's a matter of honoring God. When we honor our parents, we're recognizing God has appointed them to be parents. And so we can honor their God-given position of parent, not for their performance in their responsibilities. We don't honor them because they're perfect. Parents can be wrong and even tell children to do the wrong thing. 
We honor them because they're parents. And I want you to note here, honor does not mean obey. Honor is to recognize their God-given position. It's a commitment to provide as much physical and emotional comfort as necessary, to allow them to maintain as much dignity as possible. It's the choice to do the right thing by them, no matter how they're behaving. It's treating them as if they're worth something. Now, Paul takes that command and brings it to a new level in his letter to the Romans. He says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So learning to honor our parents is a good first step toward living out our other relationships. This is a high correlation with honoring and caring for others. Now, once again, God's giving a principle. There's no details here. There's no age requirements or specific circumstances. It's a general determination to treat people with respect. Now, imagine a community where that was true of everyone. No more race riots. No more political bashing. Just peace. It's the promise God attached to this commandment, that your days may be prolonged in the land that the Lord gives you. In other words, dwelling in peace. As a nation, honoring each other would lead to peace. Command number six, you shall not murder. With this command, God reiterates the sanctity of life. From Cain's murder of his brother onward, the right to take a life was forbidden. So I'm sure that this one didn't surprise anyone when they heard it. Why is it so important? Well, Genesis tells us, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. You see, when we kill, we're destroying something that was created in the image of God. And God was the one who gave life to that person. So man should not feel free to take life from any man. As Job put it, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Just like in honoring our father and mother, Valuing the life of each person creates a strong community. So how do we get to murder anyway? Well, I think it starts with viewing a brother or sister as inferior or worthless. Steve and I watched a riveting documentary this week about the rise of the Nazi regime and eventual murder of six million Jews. But the seed that led to that atrocity began long before the death camps were built. It began with a hatred toward a race, blaming them all for what was wrong in the world, considering them despicable, less than human even, so that their very right to life was easily regarded. Jesus said that calling someone raka or fool are not just insulting them. Those names betray an attitude that the world would be a better place without them. Jesus also made clear where the lust for murder comes from. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murdering murderer from the beginning. Jesus valued each person he encountered. He laid down his life for them. His blood was shed to cover their sin. Paul wrote the Philippians that we need to have the mind of Christ. Their life matters to God, so it should matter to us. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. 
The first marriage, of course, was Adam and Eve. Their relationship was to be a partnership, blessed by God, designed that they should together be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis tells us after Eve was created, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The two became one. Any violation of that oneness defiles it. It not only mocks the union, but the God who joined them together. Now the other interesting thing about marriage is that there's no other relationship so closely resembling the relationship with the Lord and his church. Think about how much is said in the New Testament about unity, intimacy, fellowship, and reproduction or fruit bearing in the church, which are all components of a healthy marriage. God used marriage as a metaphor to reflect the reality of the relationship between him and his people. And he called his people adulterers when they turned their back on him and worshiped other gods. He calls himself their husband. Jesus calls the church his bride. Israel was to reflect, bear God's image by remaining faithful to their spouses. It would add to the stability of the community and provided security for children, all important to the community God was building to reflect his kingdom. Command number eight, you shall not steal. Now in ancient Israel, when life was hard, living on the edge of survival at any given time, the theft of property had the potential to lead to death. Other passages give this kind of examples of theft, kidnapping, taking animals, other material possessions. A law like this provides security. It encourages a notion of ownership and rightful property. Stealing is a threat to community because it breeds distrust and strife. And Paul said that he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. You see, each of these commandments are actually reiterated in several places in the New Testament, uh, just letting us know that they are important for us today still. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, once they settled into the land, the ancient Israelites were not going to be a mobile society. If a man was robbed, for instance, it was probably by a neighbor, someone he actually knew pretty well. There were no police. It was a victim's obligation to press charges. And what they would do is uh, take those charges and present them to the group of the town elders. Both the accused and the alleged victim produced witnesses, and then the leaders passed judgment. So witnesses were vital to the judicial process. This command is given in the context of a trial. It could make the difference between life and death for the accused. Now today, we have physical evidence like fingerprints or receipts or cell phone records or pictures or DNA. They're all powerful and validating charges. But back then, it was all in the testimony of the witnesses. So in the more serious cases that involved capital punishment, two or three witnesses were required. And if found guilty, the witnesses were required to cast the first stone. So they would know that if they lied, they would be committing murder because it was under false pretenses. God wanted them to take lying in the court very seriously. And you know, false witnesses, they were a threat to justice. False testimony would not only ruin a man's reputation, it could actually cost him his life. 
Jesus is called the faithful and true witness in Revelation 1.5. He taught that truthfulness should be a way of life for us so that no oath-making should be necessary. We should always speak as if we're under oath. Justice and righteousness in the church is characterized to be like a court. Matthew 18 tells us that if the brother is in the wrong, we should go first to the person and try to work it out. But if he does not listen to you, take one or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. In community, true testimony is essential for the administration and execution of justice. And justice is the outworking of righteousness. False testimony would undermine the justice and righteousness which God wanted to characterize his nation of priests, set aside to display his holiness. Telling the truth is urged in the New Testament. Paul said, don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices in Colossians. And finally, the last command, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Hebrew word literally translated desire in Hebrew is thought of really more of uh, an activity, almost equivalent to seeking to acquire. It's ultimately, it's to ultimately be dissatisfied with what God has given them. It shows a lack of faith in his love and his goodness. Coveting is a consuming desire and it's highly competitive. It pits one person against another. It's selfish and wants to gain at the expense of others. And Paul said to Timothy, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Coveting hinders generosity. It's a decision to go after the wrong things, to want them more than what we want is right. It is deadly to community. Our neighbor suddenly becomes our competition. But worst, coveting demeans the worth of the Lord. It suggests he's not worthy of sacrifice of self and self-interest. Well then, so what? How should these six commandments affect how I'm living in community? Well, each of these commandments really are spokes of the same wheel. They give principles to guide us as to what it is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Paul said in Romans 13, For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if I asked you, like I did my fifth graders, who would like to live in a community that did, did treat people with honor, that would never steal or kill, that would not go after your spouse, make false charges against you, and celebrate the good things in your life with you rather than be in competition? I'll bet every one of you would raise your hand. It would be an awesome community to be a part of. Now remember, Israel received these commandments because they had been redeemed to be the people of God. They were guidelines to holiness, things that would set them apart from the pagan nations around them. Israel was being invited into something bigger than them, as individuals and even as a nation. But you know what? We can say the same thing for us. Because Peter tells us that believers in Christ had the exact same purpose as Israel did. He said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
So keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now please understand, we don't choose what's holy to win God's approval. We already have it. We are covered by the righteousness of Christ. We've already been redeemed. There's no checklist we have to complete to stay on God's good side. That's already been accomplished for us on the cross. But now God wants to bless us by inviting us to participate in what he's doing on earth, drawing people to himself. He wants us as a community of believers to bring glory to his name. In order to do that, we must want the best for each other. As a community, we must love what God loves, justice and righteousness. We need to have the mind of Christ, who was so committed to humankind that he went to the cross to die for them. Living in that kind of sacrificial love is how we will portray God's kingdom to the world. We have to align ourselves to his purposes. Well, in closing, I wanted to tell you that when I left my teaching career behind, my dream was to write books about the Bible. So I made some decisions that would aim me in that direction. I knew I was being called to write good, meaty content. There were enough fluff writers in the marketplace. But as I got to know the publishing world, there were a lot of opportunities to get my writing published that would come across my desk. So I had to decide what to accept and what to turn down. I had to stay consistent to that primary goal. Now, not that there's anything wrong with writing for Chicken Soup for the Soul or Less Than Meaty magazines. Why was I so picky? Because spending time and effort writing on those things would mean I was not spending time on what I was supposed to be doing. I would actually be standing in the way of my goal. I needed to stay aligned to what God had called me to do. So the Ten Commandments are those kind of principles, which when followed will leave us aligned with the purpose of God. We can build a community that will not only be amazing to live in, but bring glory to God and draw people in toward the God who loves them. Win-win. Let's pray. Lord, help us to have the mind of Christ. Help us to be ready to love sacrificially and to want the best for each other. We do want to align ourselves as a community with your purposes. We want to reflect you in, in us to a lost world. So we thank you for inviting us to participate in your work here on earth, and we give you all the glory for anything good that happens in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen.